Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Marie Hicks about programmed inequality, how Britain discarded women technologists and lost its edge in computing. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I, I should say straight away, I, I think this is a, a brilliant and, and really important book, um, particularly in the, in the kind of set of social circumstances in which we find ourselves at the moment. And, and I think a, a good place to start would be where the book sort of comes from. So um, could you say a little bit about your, your sort of background, your other academic work and, and how you came to, uh, to research and write programmed inequality? Sure. Well, right now um, I'm a historian of women, gender and modern Europe, uh, and I focus specifically on labor. But the way that I got there was actually uh, after college, I worked as a Unix systems administrator for a little while. And it was a very interesting gender dynamic in that job because all of my peers were uh, men. So all of the younger folks uh, were mostly men. And then our uh, big bosses who were of a different older generation, they were all women. And we would often kind of, you know, kick around the question, well, why, why is that? And our bosses would say, you know, you don't understand understand it it used to be that there were more women in the field and that sort of got me interested in looking at this gendered labor flip in computing and when I went back to graduate school that's what I decided to focus on I, I think that's something that's really um, we've we've almost kind of totally forgotten this as um, as a society both in, in in the states and and in the UK and and I think that's one of the things that makes 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 the book sort of so um, so important, but it's not just, um, I guess, a kind of like a social imagination thing, but also, as you write in the introduction, it's something that's actually missing from the history of computing itself. Yeah, that's right. And one of the things that really kind of bugs me is how women get written back into computing history in the same style that we would write, say, great man computing history. So we'll do like great woman computing history of, say, Grace Hopper. But the problem with that is that Grace Hopper wasn't really that representative. She wasn't like most of the women who were in the field at the time. And one of the reasons that I'm so kind of interested in getting this topic a little bit more uh, broadly disseminated is so that we can get away from these hero stories where we look back and we think, oh, the past was better. Well, it really wasn't, um, but there are important lessons to be learned from the ways that it wasn't. Uh, and actually, I mean, before we get into the um, specific um, details of the book, that's one of the things that is a really interesting kind of methodological um, question. I wonder if you could say a bit about how you actually found the kind of um, uh, the women who were just doing the job, you know, who weren't these kind of outlier heroes in the archive and, and doing interviews with them. Yeah, well, 
I looked really, really hard, and I got lucky as well. Um, the women that I actually interviewed for the book, um, that was just a matter of shooting a bunch of emails out to um, various pensioner clubs of old British computer companies and seeing what stuck, and fortunately a few people came forward. But before that, uh, when I went into the archives and I was trying to find sort of this broad class of women who were doing this work, that was very, very difficult. And I think I had to spend a, a few weeks at least in the archives before I started learning all of the various little ways that the British government um, and officials referred to women workers without saying women. And so it was really kind of an epiphany moment when I figured out oh, okay, every single time they say machine operator or machine grades, that 100% means woman. I mean, this is something uh, we'll, we'll unpack. I, I think um, particularly around this, um, you know, new kind of class of, as you say, you know, machine workers in, in inverted commas. Uh, I think before that, the final thing is, obviously this is a book about uh, Britain, both in terms of, uh, British companies and, and the British civil service, um, and, and I'm quite interested in why why you were kind of like interested in the UK. You know why why you think it's a kind of good uh, case study. Sure. Well, you know, uh, in the early days of electronic computing, Britain was leading the world, and then there was this precipitous decline. I think it's always interesting to figure it out when things like that happen. And the other thing is, you know, as an American, I see how the U.S. history of technology and the U.S. history of computing in particular kind of runs roughshod over the rest of the world. Uh, the idea is somehow that, well, the Americans did it first, they did it best, and every other country's story is just some sort of version of that, maybe a less good version of that. And that means that we don't really learn much because we're assuming that there's a lot of similarity where there isn't, and we're assuming that the American story, uh, that we can only learn things about the American story from studying the American story. So I really wanted to do a case study that said, look, look at what happened over here, and maybe we can learn things about other contexts as well from looking at what happened, say, in the UK case. And I guess a really good example of this is the role of women in the Second World War. And, and, and as you, you kind of describe, you know, crucially, the role of, of sort of winning the Second World War. Yeah, exactly. Um, for decades, you know, what uh, electronic computing did for the war effort was very carefully hidden. And so in the post-war period, we don't really see all of the advancements that the British made with code-breaking computers during the war. And women were running these uh, digital, electronic, programmable, colossus computers that were providing not real-time information, but uh, decrypting things fast enough that um, the Allied forces could act on it in a way that really did change the course of the war. The installation of the second Colossus computer at Bletchley Park was fundamental in the success of the D-Day landings. I mean, what, what's really interesting is this takes place against a particular uh, institutional setup um, in the civil service at the time that actually, um, I guess, kind of acted against these women. So uh, some of the things you describe um, as being attached to this really crucial profession that helps win the war are things like marriage bars, 
pay gaps, sexism in the civil service. Um, and I'm interested to know how, um, I, I guess, the kind of the consequences um, of this, uh, this way the civil service was organised, set up um, machine workers or computer workers as a kind of feminised profession. Yeah, one thing that I think is very unusual to modern ears, and it certainly took me a while to get used to it, is how machine work and computing work was early on really not privileged, not seen as special. If you called somebody technical, that was an insult rather than a compliment. And there was this idea that basically the people who were doing the jobs were just as interchangeable as machines. And so this feminized field, feminized in the sense of women were doing it because people didn't think it was that important, and feminized also in the sense of meaning de-skilled work or, you know, perceived as being de-skilled. Um, this feminized work was not just seen as something women did, but it was seen as low class. Um, it was sort of liminally white collar. It was what we might call pink collar or just barely above, you know, working with machines in a factory. In fact, one of the things that, um, you know, you hear as a term in this era is the industrialization of the office. And there's a lot of discussion of how, well, women are good in light industry doing manufacturing work. So we'll just bring them in to run these office machines as well. And so that was kind of the degraded context of how people were looking at computing at the time, even though it was quite skilled. I mean, it's really interesting that um, there's a sense of, a, I guess, a kind of, not just a feminized um, profession, but, but also actually a, a set of kind of working conditions, um, a, a set of working experiences that, we, we I, I guess we'd find it almost impossible to think of now, given the relationship between masculinity and IT and also things like um, high pay and, and, and social status. So I wonder if you could say a bit about the kind of the experience of women working in the um, in the computing industry, say, around the late 1950s into the 1960s. Sure. Well, um these women would have been doing jobs that looked very, very similar to the programming jobs that came around in the 1960s when we have, you know, the height of the mainframe. They would be uh, plugging up boards for electromechanical machines. They would be doing programming for electronic machines as those started to come in. Um, and they would also be defining what those programs were going to be. So they would look at workflow and they would figure out maybe what needed to be done in an accounting division, say. And then they would write a program and implement a program to do that. Uh, one of the most kind of heartbreaking examples in my book, which I talk about early on and then also in a later chapter, is how this one computer programmer in the late 1950s is basically running this main computing installation in the government, programming, testing the machines, supervising all the work. And the government hires two new people who don't have any experience, and she's supposed to train them. Yeah. And after she does train these two programmers, well, they end up stepping in and basically becoming her bosses because they're men, and she gets a demotion. Yeah, I mean, that, that story uh, really stands out because it's crucial to understanding the um, partially the changing set of circumstances. But, but as the book really lays bare, the kind of long running it, 
issues of class and, and, and gender um, in British society. And actually, to give a bit of context to this, I wonder if you could sort of sketch out what British society was like in this kind of 50s into the 60s period, particularly uh, the relationship between narratives of decline and I guess the kind of like the need for a technological revolution. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that context is so important, you know, because the country has just come out of a devastating war. Um, through the 50s, you know, they're still rationing. Uh, austerity is very, very hard on people. Um, the physical infrastructure of Britain has, of course, been largely demolished. So a lot of people don't have adequate housing. They don't have places that are clean to live or even, you know, their own places to live. And office workers in Britain are actually subject to higher rates of tuberculosis in this period than coal miners. So the health of the people, you know, in London is actually uh, poorer than some industrial workers. And you see this in the early 50s, you know, when there are these huge smogs uh, one in particular that kills thousands of people, and that's actually what um, causes one of the first clean air acts in the world to come into being. So it's a very grim period, sort of on the ground in the country. And then geopolitically, things are kind of terrifying as well, because the Cold War is ramping up. The British see themselves kind of stuck between these two superpowers. They're trying to align themselves with the United States for protection. But in order to do that, they feel that they have to bring something to the table because after the war ended, the U.S. basically shuts the British out of all, you know, top secret weapons research, nuclear weapons research. And so the British are struggling to come up with something technologically to say, here, look, we're peers. Please, um, please let us kind of play uh, on an equal footing for our protection. And that's how you get, you know, in the late 1950s, this huge disaster at uh, the Windscale nuclear facility, which the government at the time says is just an accident and it was just a power production plant. But in fact, what they were doing there is they were racing to create nuclear weapons before the ban treaties came in and it blew up in their faces, no pun intended. Um, and and as part of that, you know, the revolution in computing that, say, you know, Harold Wilson as prime minister tries to push into place in the 1960s, he calls it white heat, you know, a white hot technological revolution. Uh, he thinks that it's going to somehow burn away class differences and make Britain a more egalitarian society. But he also sees it as a way of Britain regaining imperial power just through a different, uh, slightly different means. And so the idea is that computing is going to uh, allow Britain to once again rise to first rate world power status. And I know that seems maybe a little fantastical, but this really was something that people believed at the time. And this was guiding the government's ideas about what computing should be and who should be in control of it. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's fascinating this because um, almost the kind of um, the way these ambitions were framed have the really clear um, seeds of the downfall or or the reasons for, you know, the, the kind of lack of success baked into them, particularly assumptions about 
the proper role of of social class and social gen uh, and, and gender. I mean, you know, j- just reading through a couple of chapters, you draw on these wonderful bits of language about you know the kind of codes for people being you know reliable, and that's actually what that means is basically middle class men who can be promoted um, as opposed to uh, to women, particularly middle class women who are you know. Uh, seen as not reliable it's it, it's a kind of cl- classic story of uh of britain in this period bound by class hierarchies and and, and pretty strict gender codes it's, yeah it's, it's really interesting exactly I, yeah i i guess the kind of um one of the things the book is quite quite good on because it tells these individual stories is showing that um there isn't a sort of inevitability of of, of these um disasters as the the book gets into in in its later parts but actually there's struggles over status pay control over work um and it'd be really interesting to hear about the kind of story of these struggles in the 1960s you know on the one hand you've got things like struggles over equal pay struggles for um you know a more meritocratic civil service but also you've got these really clear gendered hierarchies of um computer work switching from from women to men Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because that's one of the things that I really want to push back against, that somehow this evolved naturally, Um, that as computing rose in status, then, oh, of course, it became male-dominated. Well, part of getting computing to be higher status was ensuring that men were going into the jobs. And it was actually very hard to do this. Usually, we see um, this trajectory of um, machine work or automation coming into a field uh, going the opposite way in terms of gender. By that I mean if a field automates, usually what happens is it feminizes. In computing's case, it's very interesting because as we get more and more automation, it doesn't feminize further. In fact, it goes the other way. And the reason that it goes the other way is because, as you point out, there are specific initiatives trying to get men to do these jobs, middle-class sort of management aspirant or management-oriented men, because the idea is now that these computers are much more important than anybody realized before. And they can't, uh, you can't just have anybody in control of them. You have to have people in control of them who are essentially going to be managing people as well as machines and even rising to the highest levels of government and industry. Yeah, and even um, the meritocratic moments of things like, you know, the Fulton reforms and the transformation of civil service still has that kind of sense of the right kind of people to do management, the right kind of people to go into um, senior bits of government. I guess, right. Oh, oh no, sorry. I, I guess actually that that points us towards the essentially the failure of this technological revolution. Um, you know, one of the things you talk a, a lot about is the, the recreation of particular kinds of social hierarchies. Um, so I wonder if you could talk through the kind of um, yeah, I mean, you call it the uh, the end of white heat and the failure of British technocracy, but yeah, the fa- the failure of this uh, this dash for technocratic and technological growth. Sure. Well, what happens is, you know, as you pointed out, the civil service is supposed to be meritocratic, but it's 
totally divided by gender. I mean, women are even taking different exams. There's different career paths for them. And so what happens is that the civil service is basically throwing away a huge amount of its talent because it's keeping these folks in very, very low level jobs. At the same time, the government is trying to get more and more men into these newly important computing jobs. But what's wrong there is that, you know, who wants to go in to a low status field, right? If you are a high status, uh, management oriented young man uh, of the right class status, why would you take a chance on going into this new field working with machines, which is, you know, sort of liminally working class? And um, why would you pin your career on what might end up being a backwater, as they put it in those days? So what happens is as the government is starving the system, and by system I mean not just government computing, but industry computing, because government was a huge computer user, and they trained most computer professionals at this point in time. So as the government is starving sort of the national computing system of the women who were doing the jobs, because they don't want them doing the jobs anymore, they're trying to get these young men into the jobs, and they're failing terribly. Or the young men will go into it for a little while, and then they'll they'll drop out, and they want to do something else. And while this is happening, the government is also kind of taking over more and more control of the British computing industry. And they start to make decisions about what to do there based on the labor pool that is available to run the machines. And if you like, I can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that'd be really interesting, actually. Yeah. So basically, as the government sees, they have a tinier and tinier number of technocrats to run these computers, you know, the right caliber of person isn't coming forward. So the pool is now very, very small for computer experts. Um, They look to the British computing industry and they say, look, you need to provide us with machines that are incredibly centralized, huge, huge mainframe solutions that can be run sort of by just a few people on a high perch within the government. This is how the government is going to uh, take control of everything and do it with the labor resources that are available. And they sort of encourage or almost really force the remaining British computing companies to merge down into this one super company, ICL or International Computers Limited. And then by means of grants and loans and so on, they say, look, ICL, uh, you create the sorts of mainframes that we need. You create these huge centralized mainframe solutions to work with our labor model. And ICL does this. And unfortunately, they're doing this during a period in time when the mainframe is on the way out and everything is going to smaller decentralized systems. And so once ICL finally does have these machines for the government, the government doesn't even want them anymore and neither does anybody else. I mean, ICL is a a fascinating story. Um, Partially, there's lots of really um, amusing archival stuff. Um, You know, conservative MPs kind of, denouncing the idea of this uh this corporation that the state is in bed with and and when it closes there's these you know pleas that um can ibm who who are obviously the big american uh company you know 
that, that they could fulfill the kind of moral duty to bring um, a technological empire to the world. But it's such a kind of a, a brilliant British story of, you know, the assumptions of um, class, gender and the role of the state end up with this, you know, essentially kind of defunct and, and failed organisation that, you know, in the end, not even the government knows really what to do with. Yeah, I think that's so important to keep in mind that um, this is a story of how structural discrimination reverberates up from, you know, gender discrimination at low levels of um, the labor pool to affecting the highest levels of government, uh, affecting national economies, affecting Britain's place in the world. And unfortunately, you see a lot of links to that today. You see how discrimination still affects national economies and global politics in these terrible ways. And yet, the structural discrimination is so baked in that not only can people hardly change it, but sometimes they don't even see it because it's so taken for granted. And that was certainly the case in this history. But I think because it's a bit farther away from us in time, and at least for Americans, it's a little bit at arm's length because it's another country, we can maybe get those lessons and then maybe sort of apply them to what we're going through right now. Yeah, one of the concluding points in the book is this idea that, um, you know, all history of computing is is gendered history. And, and I think the book shows that really, really well. Um, you, you gestured actually a little bit towards how um, how the British example has relevance today. Um, I wonder, in, in terms of your own work, are you kind of like continuing this stuff or um, have you got, you know, a completely different, completely new project now? Well, I always sort of like to look at large systems and how large systems break down or how people end up fitting into large systems in interesting ways. And so one of the things that I'm looking at in my next project is how states construct people's identities and construct sort of what the the norm of a person is supposed to be in any given time. You know, we think of identity as a very personal thing, but one of the things that I'm interested in looking at is how the personal is political, how we're constructed by these structures outside of ourselves. So for instance, one of the things that I'm looking at right now is the huge Ministry of Pensions computer during the mid 20th century that uh, ran all the accounts for uh, pensions and welfare benefits. And this might sound a little boring, but it's keeping people alive. And at the same time, it's telling people what to be. And you see this very clearly when you start seeing hundreds and hundreds of transgender Britons write into the Ministry of Pensions and say, we need to get the gender on our records changed. And what happens after that? Uh, I won't give you any spoiler alerts, but <laughs> all hell breaks loose. I mean, what this is one of the things that's, I think, um, kind of brilliant about your, your general project actually is precisely that, that, you know, in um, programmed inequality, there's the sense that, um, British society has a kind of like default male middle classness about it um, and its failure to really challenge this um, leads to essentially, you know, these kind of great failures of, of technological revolutions. So it'll be really interesting to see how you uh, you pursue the next project. Is, is that going to be a book? 
Yeah, hopefully that's going to be one chapter in a larger book that's all about these sort of outlier cases where we see people kind of being stuffed into that that mold that you mentioned, the white male middle class mold. And so if people are interested to hear more about um, your projects and and the work you've been doing, where where can they look? Um, Have you got websites? You've got your Twitter feed and the book's got a Twitter feed as well. Yeah, so my website is mariehicks.net. And I try to put all of my writing up there so you can just read all my articles. And then I'm on Twitter as at Hist of Tech. And uh, yeah, say hello to me on Twitter. Yeah, actually, I, I should add the, uh, the, first, is the first chapter, um, the introductory chapter of the book is, is available for free as a PDF, which um, is, is really great. I think is a really good uh, overview of the, the book project. Yep, you can read that free online, get a taste and uh, come back for more. Thanks for listening to New Books and Critical Theory. I've been your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien. On this episode, I was talking to Dr. Marie Hicks, who's Assistant Professor of History at the Illinois Institute of Technology, about her new book, Programmed Inequality, How Britain Discarded Women Technologists and Lost Its Edge in Computing.